Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn at a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, one of the greatest vocalists of all time, Alice Bag is on the show. And uh, this is a doozy. This is uh, something I've been waiting for for a very long time to happen. Uh, but before we get to that, if you want to get in touch with this podcast, there's Turned Out a Punk podcast at gmail.com. There's also a Turned Out a Punk Facebook as well as an Instagram. All of that is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do for this show. Uh, if you're looking for me, I am at Left for Damien on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, if you want to support the show, head over, well, tell all your friends about it. Definitely. Uh, you can also pick up a shirt now. We got that all sorted out and all the shirts are restocked over at turnedoutapunk.com. Thank you to everyone that has done that. If you want to find out information about the band I play in, that's over at fuckedup.cc, tour dates and merch and all that kind of good stuff. And uh, that is that on to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, Alice Bag is here. Alice, uh, someone I first became familiar with through the decline of Western civilization, renting that on video as a kid and just being blown away by the Alice bag band on that, that they, we talk about the name change in the episode. You'll hear all about that in a second. Uh, and then years later going to double Decker records in Allentown, Pennsylvania for the first time, shout out to that store. If you have not been to that store and you're in the area, you are missing out. That's an incredible record store. And I found a copy of the bag survive single on danger house. And it has remained one of my favorite singles. I love this. <laughs> I love that record so much and all the stuff that Alice has done. She's done many other bands, but, um, you know, the bags remember, remain like a all time favorite for me. And so we've wanted to have her on the show for a very long time. And now it's finally happened. Unfortunately, both Alice and I were dealing with, post-COVID symptoms and kind of wrestling through it. So it's a little shorter than I think both of us were would have liked. But, you know, spoiler, Alice will be back for a part two in the future to talk about way more stuff. There's also a, a little bit of a, a clicking noise you'll hear, just so you don't think it's your headphones or something going on at certain points. Uh, I tried to mitigate it as best I could, but, you know, unfortunately, international lines and such. Check out Alice's last record, Sister Dynamite, on In The Red Records. Uh, a fantastic record that uh, hopefully there's going to be no, more new music because everything Alice has done is is worth your time and worth checking out. I'm not going to ramble on anymore, so sit back, relax, and enjoy Alice Bag on Turned Out A Punk. <laughs> Alice Bag, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you are legitimately one of the greatest front people ever in music. And I have waited a long time to get to finally talk to you. So it's a huge thrill for me today over at my house. Well, thank you very much. That's a very nice thing for you to say. I'm I'm honored and uh, definitely I just feel flattered. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> Well, let the flattery continue then, but we got to start <laughs> off the way they all start off, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the word or, or heard about it? Yeah, I do remember because I was in high school. Um, it was late 75, early 76. I know because it was my senior year in high school and I had off-campus lunch and I used to walk to a liquor store 
uh, to get like, my idea of lunch was like Cheetos and a soda, you know, Dr. Pepper or something. And I would look at all the rock magazines. And one day there was a punk magazine that looked like um, it said punk and it looked like a comic book, which were two of my favorite things, right? Like rock music and comic books. So I picked it up and I started looking through it and it was just like, what is this? What's going on in New York? And uh, so that was the beginning of like hearing uh, about punk as music, as a style of music, right? And I didn't really find out that it was much more than that until um, probably uh a few months later when I actually started dating a guy that would join, um, that would join the weirdos I started dating Nikki beat who wasn't Nikki beat at the time. And he invited me to go see his new band. And I, I went to my first punk show, my first local punk show, which was uh, the weirdos headlining with the, um, the zeros and the germs opening the show and their, their first ever show for the germs and the whole experience, that particular show just blew my mind and made me realize that everything I thought about rock music in the past was completely wrong and that I had to change my direction. <laughs> it's I had no idea that punk had that kind of distribution. That's amazing. Oh, that punk magazine did. Yeah. Yeah, it was in Montebello, California, and little little neighborhood in in LA. I mean, it's on the outskirts in the suburbs. Oh, that's amazing! And also, I guess prior to that, like, were you aware of like you know the Stooges and the Velvet Underground and the sort of like that stuff that's now been labeled proto punk just from looking through rock magazines? Yeah, yeah, I was aware of it, of course, and and I was really like in my high school and junior high school years, I was really into glam and mm. I was a rock fan. I was like a geeky rock fan that would like read all the magazines and find other rock fans to like get into arguments about the minutia of like <laughs> what kind, where did Elton John buy his shirts <laughs> or where did he get his glasses or uh, just like stupid little things that <laughs> I'm sorry. I have a little cough. In case I cough, don't be surprised. No problem. Um, but I, were <laughs> you? No, no, please. Uh, were you? Were you mentioned being <clears throat> in the glam music. Were you kind of aware of Rodney's English disco, or, or did you go to Rodney's when it was open? I did. I went a couple times, and it was like I think it was because I probably went either too early in the night or it was too late into the um, the glam disco thing that wasn't really as popular anymore or else I just went too early in the evening because I was still in school. So I'd actually, we, we'd actually get rides from like our parents to take us there. Yeah. So I remember going and it was just, um, it wasn't that exciting for me. I just felt kind of like I was watching other people dance. I liked the music, but I wasn't really part of the scene. And, um, you know, around the same time, or maybe a, just a little bit later, um, I remember going to the Sugar Shack, which was in the Valley. And that was much, um, that was much more like my speed at the time. And I felt much more like I fit in there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, I, I was still like somebody who had to, you know, I had friends who had cars who drove, but I always had to be home by one o'clock. So um, kind of cramped my style because it <laughs> seemed like all the really exciting stuff happened much later. With, with Rodney's in particular, though, it seems like that might have been a good thing because there's definitely been people that have come on the show and talked about how, you know, as as legendary as this place was, there was a lot of really horrible things that were also kind of going on there uh, with some of the, you know, well-known personalities. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't part of the in crowd at that point. I wasn't like, I didn't know anybody. And it, it was just me and my, uh, a few of my friends from high school that were like curious about what was happening there. But um, we were very young and very naive and had to be home early. So, <laughs> and if, our, if one of our parents were driving, we were probably there between like nine and 11 or something. Did you have any kind of awareness of bands like, you know, the Imperial Dogs or Zolar X or any sort of that local, once again, kind of proto-punk Zolar stuff? X. Yeah, Zolar X, I remember. Imperial Dogs, they, they uh, have a very vague, I have a very vague memory of that. But um, but Zolar X, yes, I never saw them. Um, but actually, there I had a, I was in a band called uh, Femme Fatale, and we had this weird connection because our, our guitarist, her boyfriend, roadied for Zolar X, so we were always like, oh, they're playing here, they're playing there, but we never actually saw them. <laughs> I never saw them. They seem like they had yeah. a really weird, heavy gimmick with that alien thing that they kind of kept to all the time from what the stories I've been told are. Yeah, I, I never saw them. I just, of course, I saw pictures of them and I, I learned of their mystique, but I didn't personally see them. What about bands like The Runaways and stuff like that? Like, was that kind of on your radar? Once Because it is, you know, very much yes. leading into your era. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, I remember hearing the runaways and buying the record. And uh, I remember trying to, to learn, I think it was American nights that we tried to learn uh, to play. And um, I mean, I was, we were excited that there was an all girl band that was like causing that get, that was getting attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, I remember seeing, um, seen Joan Jett in the early punk scene, like she'd be at shows. But I think I was a little like, um, I, I was kind of intimidated, maybe not intimidated, but I felt like there, I always, like, I, I'm not the sort of person that go that goes up to like a big rock star and just makes conversation. And I, to me, she felt like a big rock star. Mm. <laughs> and even though she wasn't, she was just a, uh, cool person who talked to other other punks i just felt like i didn't want to go up and be a groupie so weird because i actually had tried to be a groupie in my earlier days and then i just decided i'm not going to be that so yeah i I imagine also like you know it's it's you know like you're saying it is intimidating to go up to someone who is that close kind of in age to you too that's that's done it kind of like a little bit before i imagine Mm -hmm. would have been a little weird yeah, I mean, I, I, and it's funny because like all the germs seem to be, and other people in the scene were close to her and they'd like just, she was just a normal person to them. But in my eyes, she was like somebody that I thought was like really cool and who had like, 
you know, who'd been um, an influence on like, on me personally. So I was like a little shy about going up and talking. I mean, I did, I did say hi and I did like, but I didn't like initiate like in-depth conversation. I remember reading or, or hearing you talk about uh, even auditioning for a band that Kim Fowley was putting together uh, yeah. a little bit later. Uh, was it Venus yeah. and the Razorblades or is it some other project? No, it was Venus and the Razorblades. Um, because like my, I had these high school friends and uh, who were in a band with me and like we were kind of in a make-believe band where we'd all tried to learn to play guitar and we'd all like, like I said, we, you know, we tried to learn to play American Nights. We were really good at you know, smoke on the water. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than me. So yeah. you're already beating me. But, um, but we, one of our influences was um, the Runaways. So we had gone out one night and we had gone to the Starwood to see a band. And I don't remember who the band was, but I was with these girlfriends who were trying to form a band with me. And they saw Rodney uh, and he was ordering food and they told me, uh, hey, you should go talk to Rodney because you're going to be our lead singer. You have to promote the band. I don't know why I was like that. <laughs> really, it didn't really make sense. But I did go up and I talked to Rodney and I told him, we have a band and we're an all girl band and we're all in high school. Totally like selling the like young girl thing that we kind of thought he was into. Mm. So, um, so he said, you know, he was really nice, shared his French fries with me and then told me like, if I can help you in any way, I will. And, um, it just kind of, it was kind of an exciting thing that happened that evening. I didn't think much more of it. And then, uh, like maybe a couple weeks later, I got a call. I was at my mom's house and she came into my bedroom, knocked on the door and said, Hey, there's a man who wants to talk to you. And, um, she handed me the phone and it was just like rough, like kind of, I thought obnoxious sounding man. <coughs> and it was Kim, Fa it was Kim Fowley calling to say that he was forming a band and had I heard of the runaways and, you know, he made the runaways. He gave me this whole pitch about like how he was going to do it again. Um, the runaways were over, but now he was doing it again. And he wanted to, he heard that I had a band and he wanted me and my, my band to audition for him. So I was really excited. I told my bandmates and we all went down to this huge cattle call. It was in some kind of studio. It felt like a barn, <laughs> but it was probably... It was probably uh, uh, like a movie studio or something. And uh, what he did was he just had uh, like, there were a bunch of women there, a bunch of girls. And um, he just said, you know, bass players over here, drummers over here, singers, guitarists, and he separated us. And then he would just pick people out and get and ask them to play together. And uh, I, I got, eliminated after like half a song or something <laughs> and uh and then we all like we were sent out to this like loading dock as he dismissed us and but the really beautiful thing that happened was as we were being dismissed we we're all kind of hanging out in the loading dock making friends with other female musicians and uh in the end that's how we ended up finding a drummer for our band and um, 
I, I think I think of it as a really cool experience where we went in looking for something that would probably been really bad for us. Mm. And instead we ended up with a drummer and a manager because her brother was her brother was older and uh, volunteered to manage us. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, as you're saying, it's like ultimately for the best and kind of like the coolest thing coming out of potentially a horrible situation, given what everyone, you know, I, I at the time I've even heard you talk about, uh, like, you know, it was common knowledge that Kim Fowley was not a, necessarily a good person, but not in the same way we all know about it now, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I didn't like him, like from the very first time I spoke to him on the phone, I was like, you know, my band wanted to audition. They're like, yeah, this could be really great for us. So I went along, uh, but I just got, uh, I just got a bad feeling talking on the phone to him. I just thought like, he's kind of braggy. He's kind of making less of the fact that he was working with some very talented women Mm -hmm. and instead making it sound like it was all him. And so I was already a little bit like, oh, I'm not sure that, that this is the guy I want to work with. But, um, but then it was confirmed for me later because he wasn't able to get um, all girls as he originally wanted. And he ended up calling other, he ended up getting guys in the band. And then uh, he put together another band after that called uh, Venus and the Razorblades in which my boyfriend, Nikki Beat, who I mentioned earlier, um, played. And he had like nothing but horrible things to say about Kim Fowley's behavior and the way he treated the people in the band as just, you know, his, his minions. <laughs> yeah. I, I really felt like we dodged a bullet. Yeah, it definitely has been something like Kathy Valentine talked about it when she was on the show, kind of getting approached by him at a show to play and maybe even the same project and just getting that sort of immediate douche chills from yeah. him. Yeah. There definitely was that douchey, like it just kind of came off him. And I think a lot of people in the punk scene, although he like tried to associate with the punk scene, he wasn't really seen um, in the way that some people portray him. He wasn't thought of as like, uh, um, as part of the punk crowd. Like he did not go to punk shows that were like in halls and at the mask and in underground places. Like he might go to something at the whiskey or a more established club now and then, but he wasn't living the punk uh, lifestyle like the rest of us were. So consequently he was never, never an insider. Um, although I know a lot of people try and portray him as one now yeah no it, was, it, oh, sorry go on no no i just think he you know like he tried to like work in a antiquated um way which was like you know i think maybe what worked for him during the glam years where people like thought like oh you got to have a big studio you got to have production there's a you know a music machine that you have to like work with that stuff was all over when punk started growing as punk became like a really diy movement and a community all those values just went out the window so people who had that kind of cachet that depended on like oh i know a producer i know a studio or whatever 
was bullshit to us. Like, we don't need you. Mm. So he lost his, um, he lost his value. Yeah. Like that's the one thing I've really learned from doing the show is that there was, it's simultaneously like the first Los Angeles punk scene is, uh, a lot smaller, you know, like you've, I've heard you talk about the 100 punks or the 200 punks that made up that sort of core original mm -hmm. LA punk scene. But then there's also like a much larger kind of periphery scene that seems like over time to have been lumped in a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I think in the very, very early years, really like everybody knew each other and uh, everybody supported each other and you knew who was, I, and I'm, I don't, mean to sound clicky to say like insider but i mean part of your community part of somebody that you would see at shows that would support you that would like make flyers or take photographs or was in some way involved in the in building a community um and it was a very open community where people could come in and like be I, I thought be accepted very easily but if people came in with like an attitude like you know, like, oh, I'm a really hot guitarist or like, I, you know, my daddy's got a studio that we can use or something. That kind of stuff just smelled like bullshit to us and it didn't work. It didn't work in the early punk scene. Yeah. What was that first band you mentioned that you were playing in called? It was called Fong Fatale. Oh, and amazing. Yeah, and it was it, it's it's not as cool as it sounds. We were actually named after this really cheap brand of uh, of makeup that we all bought because it was like lipstick was like a dollar, <laughs> and they had black lipstick, which was a big deal. Um, so we we were called um, Fon Fatale, and we were really influenced by glam, and we were trying to play this like complex music because glam was much more complex and it, it had like you know a variety of instruments it had production it was it was something that we didn't have the skill or ability to do so right around the time that we started trying to like write in the glam style punk happened and it was like oh my god we don't need to do this this is very <laughs> liberating so we let go of Fon Patel pretty quickly and um, around the same time like some of the people that we were playing with had other other things going on family wise like our drummer was very young I think she was like she was the youngest I think she was like 15 or something and she had like school and family issues and then um our our other guitarist uh had to move in with her father and oh I'm sorry no yes she had to move in with her father because she was kind of out of control and her father was very um very uh strict so so our band fell apart basically <laughs> I need to tell you all the personal stories our band fell apart and it was just me and Patricia and um that's Patricia Morrison who at the time was very known and now I think goes by uh, Vanian. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, she and I were uh, still trying to get a, a band together. And when we went to that first, um, our first punk show, our first local punk show, that's, that was when we decided all this, all this glam shit has to go out the window. Let's do punk. <laughs> 
it, it's it's funny too because like you know that first show you go to um both the zeros and the weirdos bands that i loved prior to this but from doing this podcast i've really come to understand that those two bands are so much more important than you know like not to say you know more important than the germs but like historically from people that were there they talk about how the weirdos are just so foundational and obviously the zeros as well like these are two bands that might not have the recorded output that some of these other bands do in terms of releases but are are just so key to the story well i think musically both of those bands are just they were making music that was superior to the germs mm -hmm. but i think what really was exciting about the germs was that they didn't let anything stop them they wanted to play and for me that was really inspiring that the fact that like they would just like say yes to a show, get up on stage, make a bunch of noise, get the plug pulled on them. That was like punk, that was punk attitude. So I think what I took away from the Germs performance is just like, you know, that idea that you could just um, get on stage even if you didn't feel like you were perfectly polished. And that was very valuable to me. I also, I loved seeing, um, the the zeros they had real like they had glam infused punk so uh which was musically what i was really into and they were mexican which was huge right like seeing these like four mexican guys cute young guys that are playing uh sort of raw poppy tunes um was really really great to see and then the weirdos just totally blew my mind they were completely like nothing I had ever seen before. Um, they were wearing homemade outfits. They were covered in paint splatters. The bass player had like a white stripe going down his, the middle of his head, like a skunk. Um, the lead singer looked like he was insane. Like he was like, he would just look out at the walls and he wouldn't really like, it's weird because it's not, it doesn't sound like something that, would be appealing but usually you know people like when they're singing they connect with the audience but instead you were just like watching this guy act like trying to uh, escape an asylum or something <laughs> but but it was really cool to watch and and their music was just so exciting musically they were really really great and um I don't know if you if you've seen if you had a chance to see a live weirdos show, but it's just manic and it's, it's full of energy. Dick Stenny was just like, you know, squeezing his guitar, making it cry. And I don't know, it was just so good. And and Nikki was a great drummer, you know. So everybody, um, everybody in the band was just so cool. I can't forget Cliff Roman, who was so such I personally I feel like he's such an integral part of the band. I really loved his contributions. I just love seeing him on stage. So yeah, that band, that was my favorite LA band was the Weirdos. Yeah, that seems to be something consistently that people were that saw it uh live. Like obviously I've seen the videos and and lived vicariously through those, but it it is truly the band that everyone that lived there at the time was like they were the best out of anyone. Yeah, I agree. I think they were the best. I think a lot of people, I think you'll get like, probably there were two bands that were most popular and they're the, the Weirdos and the Screamers. Um, 
And both of them were really great, really fun to watch. And it's just a matter of like, probably who, which, which, which thing thrilled you more, or mm. you could just say both of them were great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to, you're going to enjoy them all. There's no reason to choose just one. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it is, it is fascinating though, to see what does get canonized and uh, from, and from not just the Los Angeles punk scene, I mean, but every punk scene and like what gets taken up as being important and, and key in the historical record versus what people that actually lived through it and saw it are, are sort of, you know, point to. Yeah, I agree. It's it's really strange to see um, some of the stuff that is painted as groundbreaking that I think as well. Not to diss anybody, but like there are things that I felt like were just not as exciting, not as new and not as original as those two bands who have basically been, you know, ignored in favor of other things that were perhaps um, more... I just, there are other bands that got record companies that backed them and that consequently got more attention, um, including like, including in the decline, you know, there's like, there's, there's, um, there's more attention given to, uh, like, I, I know for a fact that we were not, um, we were not chosen to be in the decline because we were uh, Penelope Spears' favorite band. We were chosen because the Go-Go's um, declined to be in it. But originally what they wanted was like, I think bands that had some, that were, that they would be able to sell, right? Mm -hmm. In some way. So, um, so I don't, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I don't want to diss anybody, but, um, but definitely the bands that, that got uh, attention and that got immortalized were not the most popular or the most creative. Um, and that's why it's important to go to shows and to support bands that are like young and new instead of like just sitting around on your ass until they make a video or until like, people are talking about the hot new band because probably that hot new band, there are probably a few others that didn't that didn't get signed that are making stuff that's just as good if not better yeah and i think that's the unfortunate history of rock and roll thing where they're most of the most exciting stuff is beside the thing that gets very popular you know or the the people that came just before it almost exactly yeah i i totally agree uh penelope when she was on the show uh Sarah said that her her regret was not having the weirdos in decline because she felt like they were a band that definitely should have also been in there as well because it just you know that has become the and it's interesting like you said like you know it was all like there's not the bags interview segment you know there's not the there's certain bands that aren't given the same amount of space in that documentary but mm -hmm. that documentary is still kind of like well, because it was so widely distributed. Like, I saw that. That was, like, one of the first things I ever saw about punk rock. Like, that was my first exposure. And really, that became the version of punk rock that I think was exported worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I have to... Yeah. I mean, I, I am grateful that The Decline exists. I respect Penelope as a filmmaker. I'm, so, I am you know, grateful that Penelope made the decline. I know she had a vision for it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, 
it's not, I don't think it's representative of the scene that I knew. Uh, but I do think it was good for a lot of people. A lot of people really enjoyed the film and it gave them a taste of what punk was. And then hopefully they did their homework and they went out and learned about other bands that are not in the film. But, um, but I did, I think initially I did not want to, I know initially I did not want to be in the decline because I didn't know Penelope and I didn't know what her, what she was going to, what her angle was, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I just didn't trust her. But um, I also, I feel like at that point, I was kind of like wrapped up in like wanting to, you know, really control everything and having somebody make a documentary and say like, you're not going to have any say over what goes into your, I'm going to choose everything. I'm going to edit it. I'm going to be the, the director. Of it. <laughs> I'm going to do a job that, that you're unfamiliar with. Um, I think my instinct was like, oh, I don't want to do this, but my whole band wanted to do it. And in the end we did. And I think um, I was very unhappy with it when I saw it, but, but I think now I've come to understand that if you want to tell your version of, of a story, you have to tell your version of a story. You can't expect somebody else to, you know, to be your voice, you've got to be your own, you've got to use your own voice. So, um, so I, I just want to say, cause I think there in other interviews, I think sometimes people have quoted me as saying, I'm unhappy with the decline and I didn't like Penelope at first, or I didn't, I, I felt suspicious of her, but I think a lot of times they don't get the part where I say like, I also really respect that she got the documentary made and that she, as a director, decided, hey, I'm going to make these decisions. It might not be popular with, you know, a bunch of punks who want to control everything. And that is um, a point of view that I've, you know, come to understand as I've matured and I've understood that women don't always get to make the films that they want to make. I, I think like just to back up what you're saying there, it's it's amazing how when you live through something, it's much more nuanced. Like I was going to say, it was it, it almost feels like that period that they're documenting in the decline or that Penelope's documenting in the decline is almost like, is that at the end of like kind of the 100 punks era and the first mask era? Like, is it already beginning to transition into something different at that point? Yes, the, the, the mask is over by that time. And um, it is transitioning because those groups like Fear and Black Flag came in a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, and this is uh, late 79, early 80s. Um, as, as you'll notice, Patricia is no longer in my band, which was like the end of our particular, that, that was the, the beginning of the end for us. We were almost like broken up. And um, yeah, the band was, uh, the punk itself, went through a transition, right? Where it started to become more, uh, more male, less inclusive, more, um, I mean, I feel like there was an attempt to kind of, um, I don't know, I think as it grew, it, it like absorbed other flavors from other parts of, um, of, 
the this I don't even know how to put it. I'm sorry, my brain is so slow today. No, don't do not worry. But, I definitely I, I think I you know, not to cut you off, sorry. No, no, I just think you know, LA, LA County is huge. The punks that were centered in Hollywood, we had, you know, it was like a hundred punks and it was very, very close community-based. Um but as it grew in popularity, as people like, you know, heard Rodney or whatever it was they were listening to and punk became more popular, um, it took on different flavors. And one of the flavors that it took on was very like a very male, very jock driven um, contingent that hadn't been there at the beginning. Like when you see um, a mosh pit that is mostly male that was part of the transition, right? Like that was that was a part that I didn't like, where I felt like this is the end of punk, as I because it was the end of punk as I knew it. When I when I knew punk, I felt like there were a lot of women up in the front. There were a lot of people of color. There were everybody was there, and people were not like they were um, diverse in their backgrounds, their dress, dress style of their taste in music. So, um, and then it became much more homogenous and it became something that I really didn't like. And I think if you had asked me at that point, I would have said like punk is dead, but I think punk just had a little, <laughs> just had a little stumbling block at to get over. Because now when I go to shows, once again, I see like, diversity i see all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and punk isn't just a genre that is played in one particular way with certain particular instruments now it's much more like there's different types of punk or um there's different people talking about different subjects that are making exciting new music and um doing it their own way without the need of like having to all sound the same or um or conform to any any standard of what is and what isn't punk yeah like it's almost that codification that kind of happens that that strips it of all the a lot of the interesting stuff that makes it so special in the beginning yeah um and i, I keith when keith morris when he was on the show talked about how it was it's like you know like you're saying it's that jock thing it's like a lot of these beach kids that are more jocular in in every sense of the word living outside all the time just more i don't know it just feels like i'm interested in like why that transition happens you know and like i'm interested in why you think it it does shift like you know a lot of people have been on the show and speculated for different reasons and i'm just wondering what your thoughts are on it um i i really don't know i don't um I really don't know why that came in, why, why that happened, because um, I feel like my band in particular had an aggressive element that, um, that kind of, I could relate to some of the aggression that was happening and some of the, um, some of that slam pit shit was something that was familiar to me because I felt like I had to work out personal issues. Hmm. So um, 
so some of that I could relate to, but the homogeneity and and exclusiveness and masculinity of it all was just not not something that I understood except for that that's that's what the outside world was like you know that was that was the mainstream as far as I was concerned that was what was out there that we were rebelling against we were rebelling against patriarchy you know white supremacy and that's what these people were repackaging and kind of co-opting or seeing and making it white and male Mm. um so i think there's always going to be um there's also there's always going to be that that tug of war you know there's always going to be I think every time you make change and you make progress, there's going to be a reaction to it. Somebody's going to come and try and get their point of view back and their their privilege back. Every time that you feel like I'm evening things out, I'm making things a little better, making things a little more equal, somebody's going to come back and claim their privilege. So I think that's kind of what was happening. And, um, and I think it happens not just in punk, but it happens in in our society, in our politics. And we always have to keep vigilant and keep pushing back in order to make any lasting progress. And we can never relax and just feel like, okay, we've done it. Now things are good. I, unfortunately, there's always going to be work. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like from what I've come to understand that in the beginning, like all the violence that you had to deal with in the scene for the most part was coming from external forces, like be it police or, you know, a, a, you know, violence from men from outside the community and, and, and things like that. Like, obviously there's a, the horrible in, is like incident with the hillside strangler killing someone who was part of the mask scene and things like that. Like, it really feels like that violence was coming out at, towards you and this was a safe place for people to kind of be together. Well, I think for me, I I may, I, you know, I can only speak for myself and my violence, my personal violence was coming from experiencing domestic violence at home where my father would beat my mother. And it kind of left me, um, it, it definitely damaged me. It made me, um, I had a lot of rage that needed to come out. And I think it would have come out in a very destructive way had it not been for punk rock allowing me to, you know, just go crazy on stage, go crazy in the mosh pit when friends were playing, you know, uh, bump into other people in a way that was fun, but not like, not hurtful. So I got those feelings of like, getting my rage out um, without without hurting anybody or or damaging too many things. Mm-hmm. But I also felt like um, I had enough rage in me that a lot of people thought I was scary. So I didn't have, um, I didn't experience violence coming at me 
because there was this air of like, don't fuck with me because I'm a ticking time bomb. And if you do, like, you'll be sorry. Mm. Um, which is, is kind of a toxic way to live, but it helped me survive. It helped me get, um, helped me find ways to deal with my, my rage. Um, and it also, I think, kept me safe in a lot of situations because I know that there was an energy about me that was, that was scary. One violence that you hear about a lot in the early punk scene that was around was definitely the police violence that was coming down. I know uh, certainly from seeing, you know, the band's name on flyers of these infamous shows and stories that have come out from these infamous shows, that was something that you had to be, you had, I guess you had to deal with, right? Or, or saw firsthand. Yeah. You, um, well, I think the police were, I think they were reacting to something that was completely unfamiliar to them at that point. I mean, it's when punk was new, you'd see somebody, you know, with dressed like a lunatic with crazy colored hair, thrifts yeah. like torn clothes. And you think this person is crazy or this is a gang. I think a lot of times the police thought that we were a gang, that we were juvenile delinquents, that we were crazy. Um, and so there was, I think, an, uh, uh, a real effort to shut down punk shows. And, um, and there was also really scary moments when the aggression was just, um, just horrible. I mean, it's, it's police violence. Like I'm thinking of Elks Lodge, right? Where yeah. you have a band like, the Go-Go's that's playing the Go-Go's, right? Not like super scary, aggressive music, but like a really cool young band making pop music, pop punk music. And, um, and there's like, you know, hundreds of stormtroopers marching down the street in like riot gear that are going to shut down this show. Um, and they pr proceed to beat people and, uh, shut down the event and cause cause violence that wasn't happening at the concert. So uh, yeah, it, it was definitely that the LAPD was out of control um, and the punk community got its share of violence. I can only imagine though the effects that would have had because it probably scared a lot of people off from being able to go to these shows and probably militarized a certain segment of the people that were at these shows a little bit, or, or certainly like, you know, the trauma that was inflicted upon them, you know, trauma begets trauma. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to kind of think about how things would have developed if there wasn't this presence or threat looming. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, because the punk community was so young, I'm sure a lot of parents probably told yeah. their kids, you cannot go to a punk show because look what happens. Right. And I mean, I remember personally, because um, at that time um, I was very close to middle class and uh, the lead singer of middle class, um, Jeff Atta and his girlfriend, Dorothy, were um, both beaten with um, billy clubs. And they had like they had like serious wounds where that had to be like stitched and they had black eyes. And they're, they're, I think there's a photo of them in the newspaper where you see like that they, they were beaten by the police. And um, 
they went to a lawyer and the lawyer told them we could file a case against the LAPD, but there will be like, I don't recommend it because there will be retaliation. And if you get pulled over for something like a traffic ticket, you'll have to, you'll have to deal with the consequences of uh, a lawsuit against the LAPD. So that was really scary for them. Um, and I think that's why they decided not to go through with that. I think we've, you know, at that point, the punks felt disenfranchised, like there's nothing we can do to fight against that. Um, on the other hand, there was like, you know, people who were like at that same show, Barbara James, um, who was Dorothy's sister, who I just mentioned got beaten um, by the LAPD. She is legendary <laughs> for having, she had like this like adrenaline rush that like she saw her sister being beaten and she pulled out like some, like a, a sign on a big stick and started like hitting the LAPD, like trying to beat them away from her sister and successfully like wounded a few officers. <laughs> but um, she ended up like arrested and hogtied and, and, but she, but her, like her battle against the LAPD is just legendary. I mean, cause she just stood up to them and she was just this like, young girl that um, couldn't would not take it would fight back and I don't know it's just it's just cool to see that even though things seem hopeless for the punk community there were still people that were willing to just take on the powers that be take on Goliath <laughs> and I think that's another thing that people you know overlook at times is how young you all were like it's a bunch of kids yeah yeah we were just out of high school and some of the people that were involved were in high school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, going back to like very early on, like you, you hear stories about that first sort of Patty Smith show when uh, Patty Smith came through for the first time or one of the first times she came through or the, definitely that first Ramon show and how these mm -hmm. were all like really kind of uh, gathering points for people. And I think, I think it was Kid Congo talked about seeing you maybe for the first time at the first Ramon show or, or, or one of these early shows and like just how, these were, you know, these, this is where these hundred kids were first coming together at. Yeah, definitely. That's where you would see, you know, people at those early concerts. Um, I don't remember who was there, but I do remember that a lot of the same people that were into glam were transitioning into punk and seeing these <coughs> very early bands. Like I remember seeing Patti Smith at the Roxy and just like, you know, her blowing my mind, just doing everything that like, that I, I, I mean, I'd never seen a woman dressed like she was dressed, singing on a stage in like what looked like dirty torn jeans and a grubby t-shirt being like such a powerful voice um, and having so much animal magnetism and just like, owning that place like everybody was just enthralled just like you know hanging on to every word and she was also so sexy on stage and she didn't have to wear like makeup or high heels or a tight dress or have you know follow any kind of stereotype of what a sexy woman is she just was sexy because she was just this sexy human being 
who happened to be a woman. <laughs> and mm. it, it, it kind of changed the way I, I thought of um, what a, you know, a, a female lead singer could be. Yeah. Like, it just feels like she, like you're saying, just shattered everyone's perceptions of, of, a poet of an artist of a musician of just yeah just everything and and once again like someone who to see her at that point in her career pre having that terrible accident of course and all this sort of stuff that she was just on another level as a front person absolutely she was magical was there like a a draw because of the lyrics as well because I've, I've also always loved your lyrics and i'm just wondering where the inspiration for that came from for you for is um you mean was Patty Smith an inspiration? Yeah, lyrical inspiration in terms of like the way she was writing, or who were some of your lyrical inspirations? You know, I really didn't start writing. I I did write lyrics at first, but I was really really bad at it, and I couldn't even imagine being on the level of Patty Smith because I just think she's an amazing poet. Um, but um, I. I don't really, I don't really have like, I haven't, I, I grew up listening to pop music and rancheras and stuff that was very, like the rancheras especially were very visceral. You know, there was very much about like communicating an emotion. Um, and I think for me, especially my early lyrics were very much about like just communicating an emotion. And then as I got older, I started like, you know, I went to college, I started writing uh, different types of things. I figured out a way to use my lyrics to express things other than emotions, just ideas. And, um, but I don't really have uh, like a writing inspiration. I think I just try and figure out how to do it on my, I, I don't know. I just tried to figure out how to do it on my own. Uh, how much overlap was there with castration squad and uh, I guess Alice bag band by that point? Like, is there like a, a do they overlap time-wise or? No. Um, well, not with, not with me in them. Um, I Alice bag band was after uh, when the decline was going to come out, we were Patricia. Patricia had left the band. Let me backtrack just a little bit, just so people get the story straight. Mm -hmm. Patricia had left the band and um, had told us not to use the name of the bags because that was her idea, and that was true. It was her idea, but the film was already in production, and they said, "Well, what name do you want to use?" and um, we were thinking of all kinds of names. Craig Lee's mother had been in a band in a had been in a film called Plan Nine from Outer Space, so we thought we were going to call it Plan Nine. Wait, his mom was in that movie. Yeah, her name's Joanna Lee, and she yeah. was uh, yeah, she was in that movie. Oh, that's amazing! I had no idea. Yeah, she was a, a she was she's got her own story. She's got a really good story too, and you know, Dodo Denny is is. Um, uh, Dick's and John's mother too, right? You know who Dodo Denny is? Dodo Denny, no, you gotta, I'm blanking. She is in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so she's, 
So, so we had some acting, so we had some Hollywood influence in there, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, Penelope came back and said, look, you know, you, you're not going to use plan nine. We need, we need some name recognition. We're going to use the Alice bag band. And I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really didn't want to use that name because for several reasons, the most important one was that it was going to look like I had kicked out Patricia because I wanted it to be my band. And, uh, but unfortunately my little voice did not count because it was already a done deal. So it got called the Alice bag band. And, um, this was around 79 or like beginning of 80 and Castration Squad had already started. Uh, Shannon had formed a band. Um, she was trying to get it together. I'm not sure if they actually played out or if they just rehearsed. Um, but it wasn't until, until um, I think, it wasn't until 1980 when I had already left the bags and I already stopped doing the Ellis Bag Band that I started um, subbing on a permanent basis with Castration Squad. Um, they called me in at first as a bassist. And then later on, um, I switched to keyboards. But it was always kind of as a sub because I didn't want to be in a band. I really wanted to. I had decided that the scene was... Um, it was going through a phase where people were dying. There was a lot of drug use and, um, and it was changing too. And it was becoming very male and there was a lot of violence in the pit. And I just felt like I need to step away from this. I need to go back to school. And, um, but Shannon, who had been my roommate, kept calling me back and asking me to sub with castration squad. So I did that for probably a year. <laughs> So did, who was Castration Squad playing with then? Is it sort of like the, the main punk bands or is there sort of a separate scene that's kind of springing up as a reaction to what's kind of you're describing happening in the other scene? Um, no, I think it's the, I, you know what? I wish I had some flyers so I could see who we were playing with because I don't remember. Um, but I think it was just part of the same scene. It was a bigger scene by then, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, so there were more places. I remember playing this weird show at Circus Disco, which wanted to like punk by then was becoming lucrative for clubs. So a lot of clubs were opening their doors, whereas in the, in the beginning, it had been just, you know, maybe the whiskey, the Starwood, um, the mask. And then like we would book shows at at um, halls or rent different venues, right? That were for a one-off show. But um, as it became more popular, it became more lucrative and clubs started opening their doors and the scene grew. Um, so we played this, this particular famous disco in LA called Circus Disco. And it was very strange because people wanted to dance, but there was <laughs> punk music playing. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's wild to see who was in that group too it is like a, it is like a super group i guess as it's happening too but also you know frank being in there and you know the go-go's connection and things like that red cross and stuff like it is a it's a real who's who 
Wow. You know what? I, I don't think any of us ever thought of it as that. I, I think we just like, I think we just wanted to be in an all girl band. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's become so legendary too, because there's that one song that was bootlegged, I think on kill by death, 13, uh, ex-girlfriend. And then there's the song on your compilation, uh, the seven is compilation that came out a couple years ago with various bands that you've been involved in. Um, so it's just those two kind of storied tracks, but around that, this sort of legend is built. Oh, well, that's nice. That's good. I'm glad I've got castration squad got a little bit of <laughs> recognition. Well, it's, is KPFK FM. Was that like a radio show that you played on or something? Cause that's where the two songs come from, right? Yes. That, that was a radio show. So there must be a complete set of that, I would think, right? I would think so too. Um, there's also the um, there's also a live performance on New Wave Theater that must be out there somewhere. Oh um, wow! Yeah, and I would love to hear that. I don't know how the, what the sound quality is like. But. Yeah. I got to hear that. I got <laughs> that's my new quest is looking for that thing. Yeah. Or I would love to hear more songs from KPFK too. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to also ask you about Cambridge Apostles, too. You mentioned middle class earlier, and that's sort of the the coming together, I guess, of yourself and, yeah. and people from middle class. And and once again, like a band that I've only heard that one song on Hell Comes to Your House, but was there other stuff recorded or what was the plan with that band? That band was an offshoot of Castration Squad because it's kind of funny because um, Shannon had castration squad we she had us on like lockdown like we could only <laughs> we could only wear black or uniforms or like there was it was very controlled and they're like she would get mad at us if we smiled she's like no you cannot smile this is a serious band you've got to look menacing and of course that meant with that all of us we could not stop laughing we could not like at one point, like a few of us decided, like, let's form a band that wears white and like, um, and writes happy songs. And like, it's just the opposite of, of castration squad. So, um, so that formed a little bit later and actually it, um, I was, I was going out with Bruce Atta at the time, who was the drummer for middle class. And he volunteered to play drums for us. I think at first, I think Lisa Bello might've been in it for a little bit, maybe even, um, maybe even Don, um, Don Bowles, uh, okay. might've played with us for a little bit. And, um, and then later on, um, Mike Atta also joined and, and then it mutated. It went through several changes. Tiffany Kennedy from Castration Squad was in it for the whole time. Um, Barbara James, Barbara, who I just mentioned earlier, had like beaten her uh, her sister's attackers with yeah. a street sign. Barbara James was our lead singer. I played keyboards. Uh, I think Tracy was also in it for a little bit. Tracy Lee. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so we went through a lot of changes though. Castration Squad, I, um, Cambridge Apostles went through a lot of changes and it started off being kind of punk, but also Mike, Mike Adda was really good at creating these like 
funk inspired riffs and um he really had a great guitar sound that kind of like steered our band in a different direction was there like other stuff recorded other than that there's that one tr uh, track on the hell comes to your house part two comp but like was there other stuff recorded Could we record other stuff Oh my God, you're asking me at a time when I have total brain fog. Honestly, this is a bad thing about like, Whoa. something that I think is not talked about enough is that if you're recovering from COVID, mm -hmm. your brain just kind of is slow. Yes, yeah. So well, um, this is normally the time of the show. The no, well, this is also the normally the time of the show where I do uh, suggest like at some point, would you come back for a part two in the future? Because there's so much for me to talk about with you and I will not possibly get to all of it today. Oh, please, please have me back because I feel like I, I am slow today. I really did not want to like, I didn't want to cancel, but I am feeling less than my best today. Well, I'm feeling um, slow today too. So I think good, you're right at my good. speed. It, it's perfect Yay. for me. <laughs> Yay, yes. <laughs> um, because, uh, yeah, as I say, there's there's so much to talk to you about. But just back to that Hell Comes to Your House compilation. Like, it's put out on the, the one of the people from uh, Brisbane Records, I guess it's called. Or what's it? I'm trying to remember the name of the label. Sorry. It's the, oh, Bemis Brain Records, which was uh, oh. one of the guys from Modern Warfare. Jimmy Bemis, his label. I don't remember. Modern Warfare is like a band that is, I think, I don't know, like, it seems like they they put out two singles and are lost the sands of obscurity, but they're like one of those LA bands that, you know, isn't part of the canon necessarily, but my gosh, they have this one's track, Nothing, which is killer. Oh, really? I'll, I'll look it up. Well, just there's so much stuff happening at that point, right? Like, I guess the, the next wave after the initial wave, there's just, it feels like there's a deluge of bands as bands are sort of cashing in or other people are finding out about this thing. Like, it feels like it would have been overwhelming at a certain point. Yeah, I think it was. And, you know, everybody in every suburb has their own, like, these were our, these were our bands. This is what was happening by 1980 punk is everywhere and um and everybody is has their own local adds their own local flavor to it and it becomes very much like something you know individual communities defining it in different ways yeah like that's i think where it, and it starts going worldwide also around this point and i was wondering if you had any kind of awareness of how this thing was kind of expanding you know you mentioned trying to take a step back from it at a certain point but like did you kind of know that this was spreading to the way it was spreading to where the point now it's like a global thing um no i i think from like i didn't have that kind of vision mm. i really thought like any like idea that punk was going to be important or remembered and I thought of it as like, this is just something really cool that happened in the lives of a, a small group of like young kids. And um, I didn't think it would really grow into what it was, what it became. And who knew, you know, at that point, who knew what it would become? I didn't know if it was going to be like the guys in leather jackets, like owning the mosh pit and beating each other. And, um, and the women off to the sidelines or what it was, what it was turning into. So I really tried to keep my distance from it. And I'm, 
I guess fortunately, I had a lot of friends who were who were not willing to um, just let it go. And so I was constantly in bands. I never really stopped playing. I just I stopped um, I stopped living um, in a punk apartment building, and I stopped. I I tried to have a day job. I tried to go to school, and I took punk as like it was like the ideology of it was still important in my life, but um, living dangerously as I had been was um, was something that I was learning to to kind of cut back on. So. I'm sorry. This is not the question you asked me. I'm no, no, but no. But I just, I just, it, it's fascinating. Kind of like, because you know, at the same time that you're, you know, as you're saying, like this is such a small time period of your life that yeah. the world is still fixated on. Like it, it changes the world. Like not in sort of like overstating it kind of way, but in the same time, like you know, you go around the world and the amount of people that have you know been impacted by you know the 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 bag single or your appearance in this documentary, or just like, it's amazing the impact this thing has on people. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I could not have uh, imagined it. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I thought it was just something that was important to us, but I didn't think that it would be important to anybody else. And um, I, I agree with you though. I think that the lasting gift of punk is that feeling of empowerment that you get from being able to do things your way from people valuing originality and creativity over things that are overproduced and, um, you know, manufactured by companies that are interested in profits instead of creativity. So I think the lasting gift is, is that everything for me in my life, I feel like if I want to do it, I can, um, I can do it in my own way. And if there's a path that's already formed, that's fine. I may choose to take it, but I can also choose to create my own path. And um, that's because of punk and feeling like I can own my life. I can steer my life. And with um, when you have a community who is all on the same wavelength, who's empowered by this idea that there are no boundaries and no limits and nothing that you can't do, then you have the power to change the world. You are, like, I think punk really enables people to see themselves in the driver's seat, to see themselves as people who can shape their worlds. At least it did for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I agree with you. That's the, that is the lasting gift of this thing is being a place where it says not only like you can, but you should, and everyone's yeah. got a voice that needs to be heard. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and that's also when, you know, when punk is broken, <laughs> you also know, like, that's not <laughs> that's, punk. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, that doesn't look right. That doesn't sound right. Those oh. are not lyric. Those are not I mean, and I do think, like, I think some people say, like, there is, who's to say what's punk, but I, I all, I do think that punk does have values, and the values are, like, um, you know, that feeling of, like, not being, not having to buy into somebody else's um, standards for you, not, or, or buy into limitations, or, uh, 
to feel like you have to duplicate what came before. Uh, this could go on forever. And as I say, I've got pages and pages of questions, but because you're feeling under the weather, I feel, I feel bad subjecting it to you uh, right now, but would you come back for a part two at some point in the future? I definitely will. And hopefully my brain will be less foggy and I will not cough as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, this it, coughing and brain fog aside, this has been unbelievable. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me and for being so patient with me. And I apologize again for my just like being out of it. <laughs> I can, I have no, no excuse except the fucking bug that got me. <laughs> Thank you, Alice, for coming on the show. And you heard right there. I, I spoiled it in the beginning for you, but Alice will be back for a part two at some point in the future. And trust me, I'm, I'm going to make this one happen sooner rather than later uh, because there's uh, so much more I want to talk about. Speaking of talking about more, I said it was an L.A. punk weekend and I am not lying. Well, I, I said it actually on the end of the last episode. So if you didn't listen to that one, it's an L.A. punk weekend this weekend coming up on my Tuesday, probably Tuesday. So not really the weekend anymore. John Doe from X is back on the podcast. This is someone who uh, has been on before, someone I've got to share stages with, and uh, yeah, we have a really, I don't know, like a, a really cool conversation. You know, it's a, a different kind of conversation, too. Um, anyway, that teases it for you. That will be coming out next week. Maybe it'll come out on Monday. Check your podcast feed Monday, if not Monday, Tuesday. All right, that's it for me. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and people that look different and, and, and you know, just are different. Stop all that shit because that is some fascist bullshit. And that needs to be stomped out. That is no place in punk. None of that Nazi shit flies in punk rock. Also, this podcast remains a podcast that is absolutely committed to people's reproductive rights and having choice in what they choose to do with their reproductive systems. Uh, basically, this is a pro-choice podcast and always has been and always will be. Uh, go out right now. There's a lot of organizations. There's a lot of groups that are making, uh, you know, fighting the good fight and they need help and they need support. And that can be in the form of your physical help and your physical support. If you can offer financial support, maybe there's organizations that could really, not, maybe there are organizations that could definitely use a little bit of financial support, especially right now. So get involved. That's all I'm saying. Um, speaking of getting involved, this is a, you know, culture based on participation. So go out there, start a band, start a fanzine, start something, start a show space, start start something because, you know, creating something will make you feel better. And also if you don't want to do something that grandiose and public or whatever, just do something for yourself. You know, draw a picture, do something. Being creative helps with your mental health. Also, I didn't believe in this shit and now it's not shit. I didn't believe in it and now I do, but try meditation. It can really help with mental health stuff. And it's, it's hard to remember to do. <laughs> and sometimes you don't want to do it, but when you do it, it uh, for me at least, it really does help. And I did not believe in it. So this is something that I've kind of come to after great reluctance. You know, I should listen to people more often around me. 
speaking of listening to people, listen to people when they tell you to sign your organ donor cards because you don't need that shit by the time they come looking for it. You're dead. It's not like that Monty Python sketch that was ripped off wholesale by you can't do that on television where they organ donors come to the people's house and they take their organs while they're still alive. No, it's not like that at all. You're dead. You're not, not going to need that shit. So just sign that form. It can change people's lives. And that is it. Uh, stay safe out there. Check in on your friends. And uh, yeah, check in on your friends and, and the people around you and let them know that you love them. And that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you on the next episode.